it's like when someone says you're, they're not wearing a wire, the next question should be, are you wearing a wire? <laughs> exactly. It's like, are you wearing a wire right now, sir? You can't prove it. I'm Michael Spratt. Hi, Michael Spratt. How are you? Really tired. It has been quite a time. It has been. Um, <laughs> I forget if I mentioned this previously, but someone on Twitter said something very amusing that I think really resonated with us. And I think it was Amy Kishak, shout out if you're listening, who said something like, is anyone else struggling right now with work-life political scandal balance? <laughs> it's true. It's been too busy. I... I started a week-long trial this week. I was cross-examining for a day and a half. I was up to like all hours of the night on Monday getting ready for things. And then they have the audacity to schedule this evidence in the middle of not only a time when I can be in court, but under the table be checking my phone, but at a time when I'm on my feet cross-examining, so I'm physically not able to even follow along in real time. Yeah, I had a meeting with one of our children's teachers at 8.30, my weekly volunteering gig in grade two at nine, and then I had to discreetly advise the teacher that I would have to leave about 15 minutes earlier than usual so I could get to my uh, informal gig as a live tweeter. <laughs> and we're, of course, recording on a Wednesday, March 6th, uh, the day after um, Gerald Butts Michael Warnick and Natalie Drouin testified, um, two of them for the second time, at the House of Commons Justice Committee hearings into remediation agreements, blah, 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 something else, and the giant scandal. That's right. And when you say the day after, you mean the day of after those people testified. Oh, Jesus. Yes. Something like that. <laughs> I don't even know. It happened today. It happened today. So you were not able to watch the testimony in its entirety because apparently you have a day job that takes precedence over um, watching the Justice Committee hearings. Um, however, I know that you've um, followed you know, as closely as you've been able to and since you finished court some of the commentary and I know you watched some of it. I um, watched all of it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just talk a little bit about kind of my overall impressions and where things are now after these three witnesses have testified or in some cases retestified. We'll just kind of take it from there. Before we do that, I think we should maybe give a shout out to our good friends at Iman Publishing. This episode is brought to you by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for both defense and crown counsel anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. Let's get to business. Let's get to business. So uh, this morning was the much-anticipated testimony of Gerald Butts, the uh, former principal secretary to the prime minister. And... Uh, 
think everybody was really, really um, excited to hear what he had to say, whether his evidence would undermine in a small way, in a medium way, in a big way, Jody Wilson-Raybould's version of events, which up until now um, has largely been received as very credible. And I don't think he really did. Is that your hot take? My hot take is... That is like the Lucas warmest take ever. I don't think he really did. Well, okay, here's what I'll say. I was actually surprised. I don't know why, because I don't know Jerry Butts and I haven't seen him very much. But I was a little surprised by his demeanor, because he was actually not... I was anticipating a slightly more defensive um, sort of body language and demeanor. But actually, he had kind of a similar temperament that Jody Wilson-Raybould had in her evidence, I thought. Do you think so? Do you think he may be... Because from what I saw, she seemed to be um, precise and maybe a bit more exacting and serious. He, I felt that he tried to maybe weave in some East Coast charm, talking about, like, knowing what it's like when communities get laid off and, like, you know, spit in some stories and things like that. Yeah, I mean... He seemed to be a bit more touchy-feely, maybe. Maybe a little bit. I mean, I guess what I mean more is that just his... He sat up straight, but he didn't look super tense. I had expected maybe a well-delivered opening remark, but then a very defensive demeanor in in response to questioning, especially unfriendly questioning, I didn't find that to be the case. Now, having said that, and in response to one of the comments that you just made, he definitely, in my assessment, overstepped in ways that Jody Wilson-Raybould didn't when it came to, for example, um, commenting on um, on things that he, did, that he didn't know anything about. So meetings that he wasn't present for, quite strongly denying on the basis of his knowledge of people's character that they would have said the things that were attributed to them. To me, that was exactly where Jody Wilson-Raybould was so strong, like not speculating on other people's motives, um, not speculating on things that were happening in conversations that she wasn't privy to, with the exception of maybe, you know, reading text messages where her chief of staff was relaying conversations that she had had with others. Anyway, so that was one area where I thought he seemed awfully confident that no one had stepped over a line, despite at the same time really minimizing his his own role in the whole affair. Yeah, I mean, I think that I watched the first 20 minutes of his 30-minute opening before I had to go into court, and then I was able to read the rest and, and read the questions and answers and, and watch some clips. He did seem to present the most coherent and responsive defense to, you know, the explosive allegations reported by the Globe and Mail and to Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony. I think that if you're inclined to support the government, there's lots of things in there that you can grab onto. It wasn't, it, don't get me wrong, there were talking points in there and some of the things that we talked about last, last episode, but he didn't have that breathy, vacuous sort of delivery and content that we've seen from the prime minister, for example. Um, So I think there are things there that could satisfy you if you're predisposed to defend the PMO on this. I don't think that there's a lot in there to grab onto if you're being critical or if you are maybe not starting from a point of believing in the character and the motives of the prime minister's office blindly. Um, I think that this is probably what should have happened two or three or four weeks ago. And if this had been delivered 
at the very beginning by the prime minister, uh, we probably wouldn't be at this level of, of scandal today. Yeah, I was really throughout trying to put myself in the shoes of someone either hearing this for the first time or someone who um, was disinclined to believe other versions of events or just like, it's not that I'm not objective because I guess what I'm saying is I was trying really hard to be objective when I was listening to him, which is why I think I agree with you. If it hadn't been for how credible I found Jody Wilson-Raybould's version of events to be, if this had been the first version I had heard and if I had heard it a long time ago, I actually, like you, I thought it was probably the most coherently delivered rationale. One of its major shortcomings, though, is that no one else up until now has framed it that way. And if it were the truth, you would sort of expect someone to have said that. So maybe I should put a little meat on the bones in terms of what the rationale was that he put forward and just kind of a general sense of what it was that he said. Yeah, why don't you do that? And then I'll ask you maybe some questions so you can uh, educate me so my takes can be hotter uh, tomorrow than they are tonight. So the, the opening statement more or less in its entirety is available. It was published in the Globe and Mail, like contemporaneous to his giving the testimony. Um, as I understand it, he didn't say everything in his opening that was in the Globe piece. I haven't read it um, because of time constraints. Um, but he sort of opens by saying he has a very different um, version of events than Jody Wilson-Raybould gave. One of the things, if I could just make one more general comment maybe before getting into the details, is he insisted repeatedly that he didn't come to the committee to disparage anyone, that he didn't want to, you know, impute any ill motives to anyone, and kind of was putting himself forward as this really conciliatory, fair-minded person. So, you know, you know, I, I'm not going to call her a liar. He, he said that. I'm not going to call her a liar. But then he effectively told a version of events that is so at odds with hers that it by implication is calling her a liar. Yeah, that's, I think, one of the first things I tweeted out, that this is the longest way of calling someone a liar when you say you're not calling them a liar because after saying that he's not there to disparage her um, and specifically sort of distance himself from commenting on the veracity of what she says it seems and I think by necessity that he is calling her either wildly inaccurate or a liar well, yeah, it's like, okay, I'm not calling you a liar. I'm just saying that you must have lied in this instance is kind of more um, how it comes out. But he resisted every time it was put to him. Well, then are you saying that she was lying when she said that? He said, like I said, I'm not here to disparage anyone. I can just tell, you know, what I know. So he insists from the outset that the prime minister gave very clear direction to his own staff, to the Privy Council, um, that... The risk to thousands of jobs was something that had to be taken very seriously, but at the same time, everyone had to remember and appreciate the independent role of the Attorney General. It strikes me that you're protesting a little too much. Exactly. You're gilding the lily there. It's like, look, I've merely said that we um, all should drive together in a car and try to relieve the bank of its money, but I made clear instructions not to rob the bank. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like it, it was, it's, anyway, I, I thought it was a little bit weird that that would be coming up so much in the context. And again, like you said, I think to the extent that they were stating that over and over again, may very well, like if you had been a fly on the wall in the room, have reflected the fact that they knew they were so close to or over the line that they felt the need to verbalize that regularly. Um, to me, the fact that you say that repeatedly doesn't mean that you weren't applying pressure to the Attorney General.
Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, and I mean, I think it is striking that he opens with this refrain of jobs, jobs, jobs. And the impression that I got throughout his testimony is that he was really trying to blur the line and muddy the water about the the ability to take into account jobs and how there's sort of a, a blurry line between jobs and politics and votes and protecting the economy. I think he tried to make that as that line as blurry as possible. So it was hard to tell from if you're just looking at the outside, if they were on it or not. Yeah, exactly. So then, um, and you know, of course you, you mentioned in the last podcast, how Jerry Butts has a big advantage here because he's already had the benefit of hearing Jody Wilson Raybould's um, testimony, right? So he can um, deliver his version of events in a way that kind of undermines what she said to the extent that that um, suits him. So he noted that they had been, or that there was an opinion provided by the deputy minister that recommended seeking outside legal advice. Um, so this issue that came up in the course of Jody Wilson-Raybould's evidence, this is where she was repeatedly urged to get a third party legal advice. Um, Jerry Butts is now saying that that advice came from the deputy minister. Now, the deputy minister herself testified later in the day, and she explained that she had prepared an opinion about all of the different options, and that she had put those all on the table, and she had not made any specific recommendation. She had just said, these are the things that you're authorized to do under the Act, um, and in her evidence, she repeatedly um, made the point that Jody Wilson-Raybould was entitled to uh, ensure that she had all the facts that she needed in order to properly make the decision. So did the deputy minister tell Jody Wilson-Raybould that she should get an outside legal opinion? No, she didn't. She said... So she where's, could... Jerry, where's Jerry Butts getting that from? Well, the deputy minister said among the things that Jody Wilson-Raybould could do is get an outside legal opinion. Um, she could also not. There's lots of things not. I but could he, do. But sort of seemed to frame it more. I mean, he said that the deputy minister said it would be appropriate to get outside legal advice. So not necessarily that it was a recommendation, but that, and I think this is quite rich, due to the newness of the DPA regime, that um, they might want to get some outside people to help them understand it, even though they themselves are the ones that drafted it. And, and, and have said leading up in defense to, you know, the allegations that this was slipped into an omnibus bill without much study, said, no, no, there was wide consultations and everyone knew about it and we received all these opinions. So it's their own freaking law. Yeah. I mean, I think that the difference, you know, how you just, you squared Duran's evidence and Butt's evidence about this outside legal opinion, of course it's available for Jody Wilson-Raybould to speak to whoever she wants and solicit whatever advice she wants. It's, that's completely appropriate. It's not appropriate for other people to use outside advice as, you know, a wedge or a tool to try to get her to change what she wants to do. It's the difference between soliciting opinion and trying to uh, uh, impose an opinion on someone. And that's, I mean, I'm no Shawcross expert, but when you read what Shawcross says, he said, you'd be a fool if you didn't go out and consult and get information. But there's a difference between proactively going out and consulting and trying to impose that consultation on the decision maker. So this is one of the relatively few examples, I would say, where jo uh, Jerry Butts and Jody Wilson-Raybould are kind of 
on the same page with the bare bones of what was said, but totally interpreting it differently. Like he, there was nothing in his testimony today that suggested, you know, what we were sort of speculating about in the last podcast that, oh, they were really saying, we'll go out and get you a favorable opinion. He, he certainly didn't frame it at all like that. That was how Jody Wilson Raybould, I think, kind of took it. Like, we'll get some op-eds, we'll get an outside legal opinion, you'll have political cover. He was saying more, it would, he, he seemed to try to, to sincerely say that it would help them understand um, what was appropriate in the circumstances because this was so new. And again, I find that very rich given that it's their own legislation. They orchestrated things so it wouldn't get the kind of scrutiny and feedback that it would have if it had gone through the usual process of the Justice Committee and everything else. You know, if they had done that, they wouldn't need they wouldn't have needed outside legal advice because they would have had a lot of expertise um, already there. So, so that's that. Okay, now this next part is um, something else that he said that I thought was really, really rich about the legal opinion. He said, essentially, um, they were very alive to the recent Federal Court of Appeal decision holding that they had failed to adequately consult on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And this was one of the reasons they were so concerned um, that they get an outside opinion because it would be a form of consultation. And they were very alive to the need um, for robust consultations in government decision making. Can I point out <laughs> one maybe problem with that? You can tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> There's a duty to consult, a constitutional duty to consult for a pipeline. Yes. There is no duty to consult, uh, even if it's wise to on behalf of the AG, and in fact to impose requirements on the AG to tell her what she has to do to get to her decision is probably crossing the line. It was such a bizarre rationale for the outside legal advice piece. Like I just, the Federal Court of Appeal decision in the Trans Mountain Pipeline was talking about a completely different kind of consultation, like you said. So I thought that was really weird. So this is why we were so concerned. We were really sensitive to, you know, having recently been reminded that it's a good idea to consult. Consult with the public, which is what they didn't really do in enacting the DPA regime in the first place. Yeah, it sounds a bit rich, and it sounds like sort of an after-the-fact sort of justification for what they did, rather than a truthful telling of the circumstances. Yeah. So the kind of real crux, I thought, of Jerry Butts' evidence was that he was very preoccupied with there being a robust and easy to articulate rationale for the decision one way or the other. So that he's kind of saying that all this coming back to her um, was to make sure that, and, and encouraging her to seek outside legal advice was to ensure that if the decision stood that there would be no DPA, that there was, that they would be able to demonstrate to the public that the decision had been taken seriously, had been really deliberated upon, and had a rationale that could be articulated that would make sense to people. That might be true if you're overturning what your prosecutors want to do, but I don't know if that's so true if you're agreeing with your prosecutors in terms of what they agree to do. I mean, I think it would be good for the government to articulate, as she has to in her, uh, as part of the obligations and publishing in the Gazette reasons to overrule the prosecutor. Of course, you would need to have rationales to, to overrule them. You have to publish those rationales, but you don't need a rationale when you're agreeing with them. 
Well, and I think this is almost the difference between someone who's thinking like a lawyer and someone who's thinking like a political strategist. Because politically, it would be you would you want to justify it. like, and so to me, this in a lot of ways, I think he indirectly reinforced that there was a lot of politics happening here. You know, not surprisingly, given the context, but the government doesn't have to provide a rationale for the decisions made by an independent attorney general and an independent prosecution service, right? It is not the government that is prosecuting SNC-Lavalin, right? So it's not, it's not their decision. So why would they need a rationale? But I do get that like, you know, everyday people who are not, you know, in the Ottawa bubble or lawyers would not appreciate that distinction and probably wouldn't find it very satisfying for the prime minister to come out and say, well, this was the attorney general's independent decision. So you'll have to ask her, right? Like, I, so I do, I get, I understand more like some of the framing of like what he would have been thinking about. But what I think he maybe didn't fully appreciate is that it was not appropriate for him to be putting that on the attorney general, putting onto the attorney general, the responsibility of providing a rationale that she's not obligated to give for anything other than, political reasons. I mean, do we ask the attorney general to provide reasons for why she's not halting prosecution of Mark Norman or sort of other sort of decisions where she's not doing things? I mean, you know, I think no, but like a lot of people do feel that we don't get enough feedback from prosecutors, right? Like, People are genuinely frustrated, even today, even people that that think that lines were crossed and whatever, that like we still don't really know what the DPP's reasoning was in declining the DPA. Like we I think we understand a little better, especially actually today after the deputy minister's evidence, and of course from Jody Wilson Raybould herself, that of what was motivating Jody Wilson Raybould was that she just really felt like this would be seen as a political interference if she were to direct the DPP. But we don't really know the the content of the Section 13 notice. So we don't know what information Jody Wilson-Raybould based her decision on. And we don't know the reasons why the DPP didn't feel that a DPA was appropriate. And I think as a result, there's been all this kind of spinning in a million directions and op-eds and elsewhere about why SNC should get a DPA or shouldn't get a DPA. But we don't really know what the evidence is at the end of the day, right? So that's... Um, that's frustrating for people. And I think it would have been frustrating for people. Um, and Butts kind of said, just imagine for a moment that the AG had made a public announcement that no DPA would be given. How would the rationale be explained? Right? Like that was his major preoccupation. Um, another big point coming out of his evidence is that he says that it was not until he actually saw Jody Wilson-Raybould testify that he knew, it wasn't until he heard her say it, that he appreciated that she believed her decision was final in September. He said, this is the first I heard her say it was a final decision at that time. Didn't she tell the prime minister that her decision was final in September? And, uh, not to, and asked her, the prime minister directly if he was putting directing her to do something different? And that was the meeting between the prime minister and the, uh, the clerk of the Privy Council, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Okay. But I mean, doesn't that sort of... But says... Look, people would have reported to me, my staff would have reported to me when Elder Marquez or when this person or that person would, would have had these conversations. They would have reported back to me. I'm sort of the head of the office. I would know what's going on. I trust these people. 
but he doesn't know that the prime minister was told by Jody Wilson-Raybould directly that she wasn't going to do it and, and was asked directly if she was overruled. Doesn't that sort of reduce his credibility when, when he's so sure about these other things that he wasn't at? Well, to be fair, when it comes to like Elder Marquez and Matthew Bouchard, he doesn't say that they were reporting back to him on everything. He's saying, he's saying that if Jody Wilson-Raybould had said to them that they had crossed a line, he would have expected them to report that to him. What so, about when the prime minister is told directly by the attorney general, like, I'm not doing it. Are you ordering me to do something? He wouldn't know about that when this has been a subject in, of debate and conversation in the office? Yeah, that seems really unlikely. I mean, part of the overall context of this is that this is in the full heat of the NAFTA negotiation. So Butts isn't even in Ottawa a lot of the time. He's in Washington. Um but he, he's basically saying, kind of like Wernick, that, and, and Butts actually even more so is saying, I basically had no idea that she was concerned about any of this until she resigned. Or until around the time of the shuffle. So when it comes, for example, to the dinner that they had at the Chateau Laurier, he's like, you know, we talked about a whole bunch, there was a meeting that she had initiated, it was about other things, and he said we were basically getting up to leave when she kind of brought up SNC-Lavalin, and he then referred to a series of text messages she sent after, like, thanks for dinner, um, send my regards to the PM. And um, can only juggle one ball. Can only juggle one ball. At the highest levels, you can only do one thing at once. Yeah, so, I mean, that meeting is one where she and he let's, tell such a different version of events that they can't really both be true. Let's get there in a sec, because I want to ask yeah. you a question about something else. Yeah. Because what struck me sort of on this September timeline about him, you know, only realizing later on that she had already made his decision. Did he suggest, well, look, she got all this information at the beginning of September and her decision to not overturn the, the, the prosecutor's decision was, she only took 12 days to consider that. Um, no reasonable, intelligent person could come to a decision like this in 12 days. That doesn't make any sense. So of course it was still open for discussion after that because, you know, she's not capable of making this decision in 12 days. Did he sort of say that? Yeah. Or he at least said, again, it wouldn't be acceptable to the public that the decision had been made in 12 days. Like, and he, this is where he got into his whole thing with Lisa Raitt, where he's like, you know, you're from Cape Breton, I'm from Cape Breton, we grew up in the same place at the same time. Just imagine an announcement that a coal plant were closed and the response from the government was that they had taken 12 days to think about it. So, again, it's like, with him as a political strategist, it's it's so much about explaining to the public, the, the public, the public, the and public, explaining as opposed to, you know, I didn't quite hear him directly say she couldn't have made a good decision in twelve days. It was more like it wouldn't look like she had made a good decision. So, but if you're talking about how do we explain this to the public, how would it look? How does that not make it seem like it's more political than policy driven? Well, this is the thing, and and the other thing is. The, again, the deputy minister who testified in the afternoon um, really just didn't take the bait on that 12 days thing. She said, I don't have access to the evidence that she had access to. So I don't know the fact. So I really can't assess. I believe her when she says she did her due diligence and she made the decision based on all the facts. But Butts doesn't know those facts. The deputy minister doesn't know those facts. Well, the she, content of the Section 13 notice are confidential. She had the Section 13 memo. She has like the input and expertise of 
many, many great lawyers who work in the public service. And she's the one who drafted the law with the robust consultations that the government says went into it. So yeah, you can make a decision in 12 days, especially when the decision is, I agree with what you have done for the reasons that you have done it. Yeah, and I think the other thing that both Butts and Wernick like hammered home a bazillion times was that it didn't really occur to her that the decision was fi- that it didn't occur to them that the decision was final because quote their understanding of the law is that the decision is not final until the final rendering of the verdict right that to me and I'm curious what you think but sounds like a very ex post facto justification like i.e it's been explained to them now, or some lawyers are telling them that there's an ongoing obligation. I don't find it believable that that they had thought the about time. what the law was in that amount of detail at the time. Like, that they were thinking, well, the prosecutor has an ongoing obligation. Because also, why didn't they put that to her, right? Like, when she kept saying, I've made my decision. Yeah. I mean, they didn't put it to her at the time. I agree with you that it sounds like sort of retrospective reasoning. And the ongoing duty applies to considering new circumstances. It's not an ongoing duty to keep on considering the same thing that you've already considered to come to a decision on. It would be different if she's like, I made my decision. And then there's a new piece of information saying, holy crow, if SNC goes under, then the whole infrastructure around air traffic controlling will collapse because they hold the keys to that. And she says, oh, I never knew that before. It was always 9,000 jobs, 9,000 jobs, 9,000 jobs, 9,000 jobs, lots of jobs. What will the public think? 9,000 jobs. There was nothing new. Yeah, exactly. Now, we'll get to this later because Wernick, for the first time, put out what he thought was something new. Well, I guess I can just share it now because I don't think we're going to go through all of his stuff in detail. But Wernick said that one of the pieces of new information was that the SNC Lavalin stock price had tanked after it had been announced that they weren't getting a DPA. They, they lost like $1.2 billion or something in value. And that was an example of something that he gave as new information, which I just thought was really weird, again, because it's the first we're hearing of that as a kind of a rationale. Did he say that to her? Like, did he give evidence to be like, and then I told her that the stock price, price tanked? Yeah, he did a lot of like, well, it was in the business press. And like, <laughs> um, so, but just to come back to Butts again, um, so he calls into question whether a final decision had been made. He certainly um, disputes that he was ever told that a decision was final. And he very much disputes that he was ever told um, that the attorney general felt that um, she was being unduly pressured or that people were acting inappropriately. And he, you know, kind of reiterated the talking point about if she if she felt that something was wrong, she had an obligation to tell the prime minister uh, right away. All right. Just hold on a second. I'm looking at the SNC stock price, and it appears that if we look at September 4th, it's $51.90 Canadian a share. If you look at October 4th, it's 52 and 53 cents a share. It does tank on October 10th. It goes down to $44 a share. But it's maintained pretty steady consistency until then. Do you know when it really tanked? When? January 28th. Right around <laughs> the time when this story broke, it went down another $10 to $36 a share. Actually, so, this story only broke February 7th. But her, but she, her 
shuffling out of the portfolio and stuff. Yeah, like so if you want to talk about a tanking, maybe you've made it worse there, Mr. Warnick. <laughs> um, so, again, Butts completely denies that um, he was ever told that um, Jody Wilson-Raybould felt that she was being pressured by any of his staff, that they had this meeting at the Chateau Laurier, it didn't come up. But this is where he's kind of insisting that he's not calling her a liar, but her description of that meeting is so at odds with his and it's it this is an example where it doesn't come down to a matter of interpretation like either she said it or she didn't like at that so at that meeting she said that she told him to call off the dogs exactly and he doesn't say that that came up that's right yeah and she also says that that he told her chief of staff that there wouldn't be a solution without a little bit of interference and he denies having said that as well and he also denies using the word solution. Yeah, he says that's not a word that he would have used. And he said, people that know me would know that that's not language that I would use, which is kind of weird. Like, you don't use the word solution? <laughs> like, he didn't think... Like, you have a problem? Like, what, what is the um, solution to a problem? That's not a solution. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he thinks it's a problem, and he wants to find a way out of the problem, but I guess if you agree that you use the word solution, then you have to agree that there was a problem that you were trying to solve. Well, and this is the thing. Like, this is the other, like, big theme of his testimony, is that, number one, he, he insists that he really didn't have a view one way or the other as to whether SNC-Lavalin should get a DPA. He insists that he felt that it was important that there be a rationale for whatever decision was taken. He didn't know the decision had been taken, apparently, because he didn't know it was a final decision, but that he very casually maintained many, many times in the course of his testimony that he really didn't have a preferred outcome. He just knew that they needed an outcome that they could explain to people. But he wasn't asking her to articulate reasons. I know he, he said that it was weird that she didn't, like, write a bunch of reasons to him which that's right actually that was part of the reason that he didn't that he says he didn't know her decision was final was because she never sent a letter to the prime minister telling him that the decision she was told, final she told the prime minister to his face well and the deputy minister was asked about that about her practice because she said the deputy minister said she is very diligent about you know but she said here it's a decision not to intervene so it wouldn't necessarily require the same or that there wouldn't be the same expectation of written reasons as there would have been if she had decided to intervene. So, I mean, it seems that Butts is unable to comment about what happened at a bunch of the meetings he was in. He specifically didn't know a bunch of things that were said at the meeting, like when Wilson Raybould had the discussions with the prime minister. He denies saying some things that she says that he said. And... How is all of this helpful? Like, are we just supposed to assume that now that Wilson Raybould's not telling the truth based on his evidence? Yeah, I mean, the only other thing of significance is his explanation for why she was shuffled out of cabinet. And before we get there, can I ask yeah. you one other thing? Yeah. Did he seem to be very vague from what I saw on connecting electoral politics to things? Did he have any insight onto the prime minister saying, like, I'm an MP from Papineau, or um, Elder Marquez saying, um, we can have the best policy in the world, but it won't matter if we don't win the election, Bichard, or, yeah. or Bouchard saying that, or 
the mention of the Quebec election. Like, did he have anything to say about that? Any recollection about those things? I can't remember exactly what he said about that. But I mean, I it seems he, like he wasn't at those conversations. That's right. He wasn't. He wasn't there for that. Um, and I think, but I stand to be corrected because I'm a little bit maybe conflating in my mind what Wernick said about that. Because Wernick definitely said, "Well, there can be a fine line between partisan political interest and just really understanding the consequences of a decision." And Wernick spun this whole thing about how there's an important convention that the federal government doesn't take steps that would have an effect of intervening in a provincial election. So he said in his role as like an advisor to the prime minister, it would be perfectly appropriate for him to flag the potential that if an announcement were to come out in the middle of a Quebec election, that SNC wasn't getting a DPA, that that could be seen as sort of the type of thing that a federal government shouldn't oh, come on. Do How many angels can you dance on the head of that pin? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a, yeah. Um, but I can't quite remember exactly what Butts... If I'm, I'm just going through my notes. If I see something, I'll... Um... But so Butts does talk about Wilson-Raybould getting shuffled and what happened after something that Wilson-Raybould herself wasn't allowed to talk about. Yeah, so I was a little bit confused about that um, because I think it comes down to their lawyers giving them different... Inf- he, he says that his waiver is the same, like the order in council is the same for... applies. It's the same language. So it's not, he didn't get a wider dispensation than she did. Um, But he, yeah. So, I mean, I guess she was told that she couldn't speak of things that happened after she was in Veterans Affairs. Yeah. Which this was all before because this is the circumstances of the shuffle. So I'm not sure if she was kind of narrow in the way she construed what she could talk about. And he was. Because, I mean, basically. What he said is that Bryson leaves Treasury. They want Philpot to go to Treasury board. Mm-hmm. So they ask Wilson Raybould, who they say is doing a great job in justice, to go to Indigenous Services, knowing, because Butt says that they're friends, knowing full well that she has fought against the Indian Act that she would now have to defend in Indigenous services her whole life. They want her to now go and defend it. So the way he explained that, this was kind of hilarious because it's such an insight into the way they operate, but basically, did you see this part of the evidence? You didn't, right? No. So basically he said they were going to do everything they could to convince Bryson not to leave and that they didn't want to shuffle the cabinet at all and that they were confident that they asked Bryson to go and think about it over the holidays. So he came to them before Christmas. And Why they couldn't said, Bryson hang it. on till the end? What's he What's he running from? The election's in October. Well, I think they, it's almost like they don't want to waste a cabinet position on someone who's not running again or something. Well, that worked out pretty well for them. Didn't it? So they, they tell him to, you know, think about it over the Christmas. And I think they think that they've been successful. Then he comes back from Christmas and says, yep, no, I'm still, um, I'm still not sticking around. And that then they... Like, we're scrambling and desperate. Like, rather, and this is kind of a point that Paul Wells made in his piece today. Like, rather than actually taking some leisurely time to deliberate about it themselves over the holidays, they, according to Butts, were essentially in denial about having to do this. And then it was a bit of a scramble. And he says, with hindsight, Butts acknowledges that if he had had more time to think about it, he would have known that Jody Wilson-Raybould would have declined. He should have taken, like, 12 days to think about it. Yeah, exactly. So, um, 
so so it's sort of twofold. It's like because but says their commitment to you know what he refers to as the quote indigenous file or indigenous agenda um, was so steadfast that they wanted to make sure they put someone strong there and that they felt that they had a lot of strong lawyers in their caucus that they could pull someone else that the attorney general could be more easily replaced basically than Phil Fott could at indigenous services. Um, and then and then this is the part that I like. He says. She says no for, like, moral reasons. And we couldn't possibly leave her where she was because we've already asked her to move. And I don't know how many people know about that. Like, if it's just the prime minister, if everyone knows about it, if it's an open secret. But we couldn't, after asking her to move, she refuses for moral reasons. We couldn't leave her where she was because that would show that we don't have control. So that's why we moved her to Veterans Affairs. So Butts' evidence is we didn't demote her for the SNC reason. We demoted her to exert our authority because if we didn't, we'd lose control of things. Pretty much. Yeah. That's That's ridiculous, especially when you throw in the fact that she's like, so much for respecting strong indigenous women when you are demoting them just because if you don't, it will show that they have more power than you. Yeah, exactly. And to me, it's like you just can't divorce all of that from their obvious feeling that she was not a team player. She, you know, like, so now here's one more thing, right? Now she's being directed by the prime minister to take a new portfolio and she refuses to take it. Like, it's the, it's the last straw. This, can, this simply cannot stand. And as a silver lining, we now have Lametti saying that, like, I'll consider SNC. I'll consider it new. And we have the prime minister saying in PEI that it's not a foreclosed option. And we have... What's his name? McKinnon at um, Power and Politics saying that SNC are entitled. They're entitled to a, a DPA. So I guess it's just like, a, as Bob Ross would say, it's a happy coincidence in this forest of scandal. Yes, exactly. Um, and the other thing that, you know, I'd be interested to hear some other people's views on, but I have heard it said that it's not really true to say that Jane Philpott was the only person who could handle the Treasury Board portfolio, that there were other people in the cabinet um, who would be well suited to take that on. And, you know, if their commitment to Indigenous um, services was as strong as they say it was, maybe when Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, declined, they might have tried to find a way to keep Jane Philpott there rather than putting... Are you saying that Seamus O'Regan, <laughs> maritime broadcaster and... Just, handsome TV face guy, yeah. he's not the the high quality minister you want in indigenous or in, in indigenous services after his successful time in veterans affairs. Well, it certainly didn't send the kind of message like that, like people looked at that and thought, huh, okay, that's odd. So if, if they were as preoccupied as they say they were about having the right kind of person in that job, they certainly like capitulated pretty quick on the basis of the message they had to send to Jody Wilson-Raybould, right? Like if, so I don't know, that, that was a bit, it was also, um, yeah. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of, um, I'm not sure that I fully buy, um, Butts's version of the cabinet shuffle, uh, events. No, I, I don't think so. And I mean, the other question is this, if they invited Wernick back to testify again and, drew him back to testify again. And when we have this piece missing from Wilson Raybould, and there's obviously things that she could respond to in Butts' evidence, she's obviously coming back to testify again, right? 
<laughs> well, this was all the drama at the end of the day. Well, actually, at the end of um, the morning session and at the end of the afternoon session, uh, there were motions to have Jody Wilson-Raybould recalled uh, on the basis, you know, that basically, well, Wernick and the Deputy Minister Druin got to come back to respond to her evidence, so how come she can't come back and respond to Butts's evidence? Now, um, the Liberals all voted the motion down, saying that they prefer to... Together? All together? Yeah. So odd. What are the odds? What That's the, odds? the only time that happened today? Uh, no, no. They uh, defeated every motion that came from the opposition side, um, which I just don't understand. Like, there's just certain things where I'm thinking, if you really do want to send the message that this is an independent committee and that you're doing your best not to be partisan, like, I don't fully get why they voted down, for example, having the witnesses testify under oath. They should throw one to show that they're actually independent. Exactly. And the thing is, it's really hard to escape the conclusion that they don't want to make a decision about Jody Wilson-Raybould on the spot because they feel that they have to consult with other people outside of the committee, which at the same time, you know, um, Bartish Chagger is insisting that the committee does its work independently. Like... That's why Butts resigned, because it'd be really awkward for them to have to consult him when he's <laughs> on, on the stand giving evidence. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a decent chance that they will recall her. And actually, to me, this is also sort of elucidating a flaw in this entire process. Like, it would have been so better, so much better, if there had been a process that was more akin to an inquiry or a trial, where there would be oaths, where there would be like a more structured examination and cross-examination of witnesses. Because here, like... It cannot be the case that every person's going to testify and then testify again after every after another person testifies. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not a really, well, it's a cumbersome way of doing things, and it's also not a good way of doing things because everyone gets to hear everyone else's evidence before they testify. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's left me deeply unsatisfied. And maybe if Butts' evidence has moved the needle, it's that they are evil and conniving and manipulative to incompetent, oblivious, and political. Which, I mean, I don't think either of those is very good. No, and especially on the latter, it's like, again, they said they were going to be different. They populated their candidates with people that were not really partisans, that were not um, politicians. And, you know... Then at the end of the day, though, they expected them to act like politicians, right? And then that's contrary to what they said they were going to do. Um, so I don't know. Like, I, I don't think Butts's testimony, like, really hurt the government in any way. I think in a couple small ways it might have helped the government. Um, but I almost feel like I got taken in by his, like, demeanor and, um, you know, he has notes and stuff, too. Um, and, and I sort of, if I was putting the two of them side by side, um, but not sort of cross-referencing them, I would say, yeah, he came across as, as pretty credible. But the more you dig into what he said, and it's like almost because he was insisting that he wasn't calling her a liar, that like I was sort of initially taking that at face value. But the more I think about it, um, there are several material ways in which their version of events are just so completely at odds that one of them has to be not telling the truth. Um, and so that's a bit of a shame, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess one other point of interest in his evidence is that, you know, he was asked why he had resigned. I just have to say also, once again, that I found Brandy Boissonneau, uh, by contrast, his, once again, his tone and demeanor was so off-putting and rude. I, I just, I he really was rude don't to, understand. Rude to bots? No, he, he just was, 
aggressive in his tone. Like, I don't know. It was weird. He just seems unpleasant. Yeah. But, um, so he asks why Butts resigned. And several people have been asking me on Twitter to help them understand why Butts says that he resigned. And I still don't fully get it. Um, Because initially he said that he resigned so that he could vigorously defend himself. That's right. And I wouldn't describe what he did today as of vigorously defending himself at all. Well, they must have been asked by someone, why did you resign yes. if you did nothing wrong? So what did he say? Him that. And he basically said, well, because of my close friendship with the Prime Minister, I was very concerned about optics, like if we were seen not to be doing enough, that people might perceive that as the Prime Minister trying to save Jerry Butts' job. Shouldn't have his answer been, I resigned to vigorously defend myself, <laughs> like I said in my <laughs> resignation letter? Yeah, because this just, to me, didn't come across as a, a vigorous attempt. Now, maybe he thought there were going to be allegations against him that weren't ultimately made. Like, maybe he was expecting something so much worse from Jody Wilson-Raybould. But he basically says, like, I think he's, I think he says, you know, he went back through his calendar and he and um, PMO staffers Marquez and Bouchard only met on SNC level in one time. And he had, like, that meeting at the Chateau Laurier. And other than that, and that meeting between Jody Wilson-Raybould's chief of staff and Jerry Butts and Katie Telford. But that, that seems to have been kind of like the sum total of his direct involvement. Um, and then the rest is, trust me, because I trust my good friends who exactly. would never do anything wrong. Exactly. It was like, um, it was never reported to me that they were pressuring anyone inappropriately. I would have expected to be told if that was happening. And knowing them as I do, I don't believe that they did that. I always expect that when my employees and partners are doing inappropriate things, they're up front with me about it. Well, no, and I mean, I've said before, like, I know Elder Marquez too, and I know him to be an incredibly smart lawyer with an enormous amount of integrity. And I am very surprised by these allegations in a lot of ways. Um, but at the same time, like, Jody Wilson-Raybould said these things happen, and there's no real reason at this point still, I haven't heard anything that really causes me to, to question that. For Butts to be denying it with no direct knowledge and her to be speaking to her direct knowledge, as between those two versions, I think it makes sense that you would err towards the person who was actually present. Now, I think it does seem from all of this that for the most part, I think people were motivated by good intentions. Um, and so, again, this is where I feel like, why didn't they just ages ago say, we all had good intentions, with hindsight we crossed a line, or something? I mean, I think that that you can probably say they're all motivated by good intentions, but good intentions isn't defense to, you know, serious conduct that goes against the rule of law and how we want to structure things. And certainly I think their biggest problem is that if you can connect stuff that they were doing, because even on Butts' evidence, there was repeated contact by him and his staff. There was offers of op-eds and outside legal opinions. There was constantly going back to the person and that all is pretty close to the line. As soon as you add electoral politics into it or any discussion of that, it's obviously over the line. Also, did anyone ask Butts why he thought 9,000 jobs would be lost if if SNC was eventually convicted at the end of the day, which isn't a sure thing at this trial? He was asked about that, and I was actually glad to see um, 
the um, committee members, and I'm also noticing the media now sort of starting to challenge. And we talked about this on the last podcast, right? Like that it's SNC's representations are just being taken as facts. And, um, and but now I'm trying to remember, was it Butts or Wernick? Because Wernick, I'm pretty sure... Sh- Let's talk, let's talk about Warnock's evidence. And... Yeah, because but I'm just like on that particular point because definitely there was a question from the committee about um, how do you know it's nine thousand jobs, and I'm pretty sure it was Butts, and he basically said, "Well, I gotten a bunch of briefings here and there and from finance and whatever, but he certainly couldn't point to any particular report or document or anything that would establish that as a fact." When SNC was lobbying us, that's what they said. Yeah. Exactly. One other interesting thing he said, and then we can move on, is um, Boissonneau asked him about, um, you know, how the government takes into account provincial elections, like what, whether they do, just to come back to that point, and um, when, there's an impl- when there are implications for intergovernmental affairs. And Butt said, um, gave the example of the NAFTA negotiations and the dairy concessions and how, you know, they knew that that was... Um, there was a Quebec election coming up, and that would be have negative consequences in Quebec, but they did it anyway. So, there you go. Um, and also, Murray Rankin did put it to him that um, about this whole thing that really both he and Wernick went on and on and on about this ongoing obligation to reconsider and consider new facts. And um, Rankin put it right to him, like, yeah, but there were no new facts. And he was like, well, <laughs> a little stuck on that one. So we've been going for a little while. Yeah. I'm really tired. Yeah. So we'll just talk briefly about the others. Is Wernick the bad guy here? Because the best tweet or the best comment out of this, out of this whole thing was from Elizabeth May, I think, who said uh, to, I think she said this to Wernick directly, that... She that so she says that she doesn't accuse Wernick of being a partisan in support of either the liberals or conservatives, but rather willing to interfere for who's ever in power. Yeah, which isn't that kind of what we said, or at least I think when we had our podcast after he testified the first time and I pushed back against people saying he was a partisan. And I said, I feel like he takes his loyalty to the government too far. So, I mean, the thing about Wernick's testimony is it was even more hostile and aggressive than last time. He conducted himself kind of how I was expecting Butts to, which was incredibly defensively, really, really offended. But he's been trolled on social media. Yeah, he handed up like a thick package to the committee and Murray Rankin questioned the relevance of it, of attacks that he says from social media, which he says some of which he feels approaches intimidating a witness and or contempt of the committee and that they should look into it. Well, I, do we have access to those? I want to see them. No, we don't. And he didn't say who they're from. Like, I'm not sure if he is alleging that he was being trolled by, like, members of parliament, um, which is possible. Uh, we didn't really get a lot of detail on that. But he really did double down on his opening comments from his first testimony, even going so far this time as to, because he was basically, it was put to him like, how was that relevant? How can you double down on someone's going to be assassinated in the next election? He did. He said, um, he said, I have the highest security clearance, um, that you can get. And I'm telling you, I have real concerns about foreign interference in the election. And he said it like that. Like it was kind of basically like, I know things that you don't know. And this is a real problem. And what then he does also that have to do with the PMO trying down. to influence the AG? I know. And then he also doubled down on the Carolyn Bennett thing. 
So it was weird. Carolyn who? Like, well, I, like, I know who Carolyn Bennett is, but like... What does that have to do with that? Has she been connected to this as, at all? No. And he, to be fair, he didn't open with that again. It was in response to questions. Quite, like, Murray Rankin basically said, you know, I thanked you for your service last time. And, you know, I thank you again. You had a long service. But I really don't understand, um, like, how you can expect Canadians to not see you as partisan when you went on and on about all that irrelevant stuff. Um, but he, yeah, so on that, he super, super did double down. Um, and what I thought was interesting, like, whereas Butts constantly said, I'm not here to call anyone a liar, but this is what I know to be true kind of thing. Wernick pulled the, like, repeated assertion, I have no specific recollection, which really felt lawyered up, like the way he was, um, yeah, at one point he said, I wasn't wearing a wire. I wasn't making contemporaneous notes. He said he wasn't wearing notes. a wire like three times. It's like when someone says they're not wearing a wire, the next question should be, are you wearing a wire? <laughs> exactly. It's like, are you wearing a wire right now, sir? It's like in every uh, wiretap case I do, in every one <laughs> I do, at some point on the phone, my client or one of the people will say, I think our phone is being tapped <laughs> and then immediately start talking about the crimes yeah, that, that are being investigated. Yeah. So that was in relation to Jody Wilson Raybould's allegations that he uttered these veiled threats. He didn't, he didn't deny threatening her. He said he had no recollection of threatening her. So it was a little, and, and he hadn't, he didn't have any notes and he wasn't wearing a wire. So there's really no way of knowing if he ever said that. <laughs> His lawyer's kicking himself, saying, those aren't the lies I told you to tell. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of um, weird, I thought. Um, because you would think that you would remember uttering those kinds of threats. I remember the threats that I utter, and I can remember the threats that I don't utter. But I mean, to be fair, she has them written down in notes contemporaneously, like basically verbatim. So it's pretty hard for him to deny having said those things, although Butts is doing that with, with certain things. Um, but yeah, so he basically says, well, I have no recollection and I have a lot of meetings and I, I wasn't wearing a wire. I mean, I, I will say that, and this came up um, like in the States with uh, like Trump investigations and stuff. Just because you make a contemporaneous memo doesn't mean that the contents of that memo are true. No, definitely I mean, not. If, if you're a liar, a contemporaneous memo is a good way to record yeah. what didn't happen. And it doesn't necessarily make it true, but in a situation where, this is why police officers take notes, they can lie in their notes just because they write in their notes doesn't make it true. But when you make notes, it helps refresh your memory when you don't remember. And it sounds like this might be a convenient way to avoid answering a question without necessarily calling someone a liar. Yeah, and he also, you know, asserted that he's known Jody Wilson-Raybould for a long time. He considered her an ally, a colleague, and a friend, he said. Oh, maybe that's why he spoke frankly and, and didn't guard his words around her. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he very strongly maintained that he'd done nothing wrong. I actually found um, the deputy minister's evidence to be the more interesting evidence. It was a lot more detailed than it was when she testified the first time. I'm not sure why exactly. Um and I found her interpretation of events to be a lot more generous and favorable to Jody Wilson-Raybould in the sense that she, you know, affirmed that while um, 
that she was very diligent, that she guarded her independence very, very strictly at all times. Like it was what I took away, not just in this particular context, but she was always very mindful of the dual roles and keeping them separate. Um, and I thought she just, um, like her, and, and she was quite involved for a period of time. She was very diligent about um, really explaining like how the deputy minister um, in the Ministry of Justice doesn't really communicate with the director of public prosecutions, of explaining why she wouldn't receive even details or context, um, but that she always assured Jody Wilson-Raybould that if she needed more facts, that she should go back to the DPP and request them. So yeah, it was it was interesting. Like I thought, I found um, she painted Jody Wilson-Raybould kind of in a more favorable light than I necessarily found the first time around. Was there any evidence about Lametti and uh, him assuming the role as AG and conversations about SNC or things that, because I can't believe, I mean, this government has already shot themselves in both foot feet. With both, both foot. It's been a long day. I can't imagine that they would do, deliver a gut shot against themselves and actually approve the DPA, but that seems to be where things are going. Is there anything that sheds light on that? Okay, well, actually, this was one area where maybe the government got a bit of a point. Was on the, you know, Jody Wilson-Raybould explained how she was really concerned when she had heard from Jessica Prince that, like, briefing number one for Lametti was going to be on SNC-Lavalin. Wernick disputed that. He said that there were a couple of big files that he was to be briefed on. Um, one was this new directive in relation to civil litigation. Oh, this was the other thing. Sorry, just quickly on the the sort of hyperbole at the beginning is that Wernick said right in his opening, Jody Wilson-Raybould and I worked really hard on this new directive on civil litigation with Indigenous people that is going to be transformative in terms of how the government litigates these cases. It could be unra unraveled on a dime, like because it's, it's just, you know, like a, a future government could undo it. And I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that all the parties in the upcoming election are clearly asked what their position is on it um, so that voters can can know when they cast their ballots. And then he say, and if I'm still clerk under that future government, I will support them unraveling <laughs> it because I will do whatever my masters tell me. Yeah, but so on the briefing, like both he and Nathalie Drouin basically said um, it, that it wasn't exclusively SNZ that was SNC that was going to be order number one, that there were a couple of things. And Drouin said um, it was basically the new minister had to be briefed on the quote hot files. So that included like TMX litigation. Um, and she said that SNC was active because the judicial review was ongoing. And so, like, I, I, I don't know, like, to me, I heard from both Wernick and Druan, like, a relatively credible um, explanation for why the new AG would be briefed on this that, that would be consistent with something other than he was to be pushed to give a DPA. I can also see why Jody Wilson-Raybould might have made that inference and could have been mistaken um, based on their evidence. In fact, it's one of the few areas where I actually quite do see that in a different light now and I think I would be prepared to possibly accept that as true. It doesn't to me undermine whether there was pressure or not on the Attorney General. I mean it sounds reasonable. I think that you probably especially if you know there's going to be questions about why you didn't why it wasn't overturned you're going to, have to answer those questions so you're going to you can't just say that was the other person's decision I don't know anything about it um, although he said that a bunch of a number of times. 
I just don't trust Lametti for some reason. Well, I mean, I don't think he's done himself a ton of favors in the way he's communicated about this issue. I do appreciate that there are certain constraints on him in terms of what he can and can't say, but in some ways I think it would be better if he just didn't say anything then because um, I feel that both he and Steve McKinnon, who's done some just, um, you know, media stuff on behalf of the party, who's an MP from Gatineau, to me they have both been sending signals that the government was or is still seriously considering giving a remediation agreement. They're both Quebec MPs. Um, not to seem totally brain dead, but have we already had a podcast since Jane Philpott resigned? No. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, Which is big, because I mean, there's still that. How did... So, there was some evidence about Philpott approaching Butts or someone and asking if the shuffle was about SNC. Yeah. How would she know that? Well, because she, you know, she's friends with Jody. Are you saying she's besties with Jody? No, but see, this is like the timing of her resignation. And like, again, this is purely speculative on my part. And I would just like I like your speculation. I've heard it before. That while I know a lot of liberals have been accusing people of speculating a lot, they are the ones that have created the fertile ground for speculation by not talking for so long. But Because to set it up, to set your speculation up. Yes. Phil Pot was in the loop on some of this. She's in cabinet. Yeah. She heard Wilson Raybould speak at cabinet. Yeah. She heard Wilson Raybould's evidence. Yeah. She didn't resign. Not immediately, no. And then some time went by, and then something happened, and she did resign. So what? No, for sure that something happened. But I'm just saying, I think something more than just Jody Wilson-Raybould's version of events at the Justice Committee and or to Philpott in private has to have happened to precipitate, you know, one of the most well-respected, most competent ministers in the cabinet to resign. And again, I say this on the basis of no facts whatsoever, just like my gut is that something happened in cabinet discussions that precipitated her resignation, and I just wonder whether it might not be that the cabinet was told that the attorney general would, in fact, be intervening um, to direct the DPP to do something, either enter into negotiations or offer a remediation agreement, whatever it is. It just feels like something has to have happened to take her from being mad but prepared to stay to resigning. It could have been something else. But related to this case, though, for sure, because she makes it clear in her letter that the government hasn't handled this, this properly and she's not comfortable and she can't be part of the cabinet anymore. That's right. I mean, the fact that back on January 5th, when there was, you know, the shuffle, she expressed concerns about it being about SNC. I mean, if that information came from Wilson-Raybould, it just shows that there was already suspicion and there was already discussion that this SNC thing was an issue that the AG was feeling that Wilson Rabel was feeling pressure about. Yeah, and media reports have said that Philpott has been, that it had been apparent to the Prime Minister for a period of time that Philpott wasn't happy with how the, this was being dealt with, um, and the media reports that um, Trudeau only had an hour's notice of her actual resignation, but that he was aware that she was struggling with all of this. So maybe it was just the culmination of thinking about it more, and also the really idiotic talking points that have been out in the media from various people. This, you know, Steve McKinnon going out and saying that SNC is entitled to a DPA, which he has since walked back, but, um, you know, just really shows 
that kind of attitude there. So, you know, maybe my speculation, I'm totally prepared to be proven wrong and I probably never will be proven right because of captain confidences. So um, I'll just let my speculation hang there. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to take this sort of breathy election stuff from Trudeau, like his speeches and his, you know, deflections on this stuff and, you know, uh, announcing, you know, our new moon project and our environment stuff. I mean, if, if jobs, jobs, jobs is always number one, I don't know how that goes with environment, environment, environment so much. Yeah, I mean... I don't know if you saw this, but tomorrow at 8 a.m. he's making a big statement about all of this. So this will be um, totally out of date by the time people listen to it. But, you know, it was leaked to the media that he's contemplating a statement of some contrition. And, I mean, I just cannot wait to hear it. Because after hearing Butt's testimony and the follow-up evidence from Warnick, like, I just don't really see the Prime Minister come. I feel like it's going to be one of those apologies like, I'm sorry you're offended. Or, I'm sorry that some people seem to feel that we crossed a line. There isn't much daylight. There's not much room in that crack for him to slip through based on what he said before and what positions have been before and what Butt said. I mean, like, he's got to thread that needle pretty carefully. I don't know if he... I don't... I doubt he can do it. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But, you know, there's, there's no doubt that Jane Philpott's resignation is really devastating for the government. And... Um, you know, I can see why it might have been a turning point in the Prime Minister's own mind in terms of, like, the... I, I don't know how he couldn't see it previously, but that the course they were on was just not going to satisfy people. And and I don't think people's lack of satisfaction is at all unreasonable. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't think there has been any kind of coherent explanation given by the government. And this is what will be interesting in terms of any kind of an apology he could give, because he has just been so insistent that he had done nothing wrong and that he was just looking out for jobs, that he's going to have to really show that he has a totally new appreciation of the situation and of the of the legal framework, I think, in order to credibly apologize. I mean, I think that the easiest explanation here is, number one, they're not that smart and they don't, they didn't fully consider that they were, you know, undermining the rule of law by doing what they did. And it's easy, I think, to be blind to that when your whole identity is built on sort of a self-righteous belief that you know what's best and that you're on the side of the angels. And I mean, that's sort of what, I mean, I disagree with the conservatives on almost everything. Um, I think I probably agree with the liberals on quite a lot, but they're just such bad communicators and the self-righteous entitlement to, you know, this morally right position um, and insisting that, you know, morality is on their side. I think that that can blind you to improper acts in pursuit of what you think is right and morally right. I think you're exactly right. And in fact, like, again, most, most recently, a lot of the liberal talking points on this have now been about lifting children out of poverty and action on climate change and basically, like, trying to make the case that, like, yeah, there's these other things, but at the end of the day, or like the caucus members and the cabinet ministers who are sticking with the prime minister are kind of saying, well, I believe in our overall agenda. So, you know, and they're being pushed like, well, so do the ends justify the means? And like, it would seem that for most of them, the answer is yes, which I just think is really upsetting because, you know, the institutions of democracy are so critical. And just because you think that you're the, you know, you have the moral authority doesn't mean that you do. You don't have any moral authority whatsoever if you're exceeding, you know, what the Constitution allows. 
So last question, not knowing what the prime minister is going to say tomorrow, does this stop the bleeding? Like, does it get better after Butts' testimony? Does it go away? Is it still a big issue, do you think? I think there's going to be a real push to hear from the PMO staffers, Katie Telford. Um, I think there's too much of a... Um, there's too much room between the versions of events that we have on the table right now. And there's a ton, a ton, a ton of hearsay. So it's like, you know, maybe certain things are getting lost in translation. Maybe other people have notes or recollections that would be helpful in reconciling. And Murray Rankin also made the point, the NDP MP, that in fairness to those people, like as a matter of just natural justice, they're being painted in a pretty bad light, some of them, and that it really would be only fair for them to come and tell their version of events. And so I, I'm very certain that the opposition members on the Justice Committee will be um, pushing really, really hard to hear from those people. And in a lot of ways, I just don't see how we can't at this point. This is, again, where I say like it would have been easier if we had a process set up that was more akin to an inquiry from the start, because this kind of ad hoc, um, slowly teasing out, you know, it's not going to be another two weeks now before they make uh, as I understand it, before they meet again to decide who else to call. Um, and obviously, all of these people have lawyered up, and that decreases the lawyer pool. So if there's a commission of inquiry, <laughs> I'm not conflicted out because I haven't <laughs> represented any of these people, and I can ask some of the questions that I want to ask. Yeah, they're totally going to call you. Totally. Someone might. Someone might. <laughs> you think that bridge is burned? Do you think if we didn't do these podcasts and talk about this, that I could be representing one of these people? You could be representing Jerry Butts right now. Missed opportunity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of our take at this point. I don't feel like... I still, still on balance, find Jody Wilson-Raybould's version of events to have been very, very credible. I think I've pointed to a couple things where... It could have been subject to interpretation, but like we've always said, most of her um, evidence was very <coughs> factual and detailed and not about perceptions or impressions. Um, and then when it comes to butts, you know, to a pretty large extent where he differs from her, he differs in relation to matters that he has no direct knowledge of. So that's a real shortcoming, I think, of his, um, of his testimony. And I mean, if you just look at motivations, like people tell lies for crazy reasons, but, you know... The famous saying, you're cutting off your nose despite your face. Not many people actually cut off their nose despite <laughs> yeah. their face. Like, And so, you know, the fact that she, you know, really hurt herself um, and Butts is really helping his friend, um, I don't think that's an insignificant or an irrelevant consideration when you're looking at their evidence. Do you think she hurt herself? How? I, I don't think she did. Well, she's not in cabinet anymore. She had all of this vitriol thrown at her. She's now having the PMO calling her a liar. But they're not calling her a liar? They're and, calling her a liar. I mean, they're implying that the only available inference is that they think she's So, a liar. I mean, like... But still, she her reputation is way better now than it was when she was in that job. But she couldn't have known that when she did what she did. Um, it's true. So, I mean, like, I think that... It's, it's not nothing when you're testifying and giving friendly evidence after you've heard a bunch of the evidence to help your friend. Yeah. Um, that's not nothing. No. No, it's not. So I think that's basically it. Uh, two a week. Two a week. That's how we roll now. And for what it's worth, it's been very hard. <laughs> and so we're 
Uh, oh, do you know what we didn't do? We didn't tell people to go out again and buy Iman books. You're not wrong. That's what we should have done. We should have. You should do that. You should. The Criminal Law series. It's really good. Yeah. Um, I was actually looking at one today. Which one? Digital evidence. It's a, it's a very helpful one. I've had a bunch of emails and like authenticating emails and uh, text messages and things like that. They That type of digital evidence is actually in every case. It's actually in the SNC case because Jerry Butts was looking through a lot of his emails and stuff. Oddly, he had access to them even though he doesn't have control of them anymore. How did he get them? Yes, that was a question that was raised by Lisa Ray. Um, I think Iman Publishing will cut us some slack given that we've been doing so many podcasts lately and we have said their name about 10 times, including doing the opening thing. So thanks, guys. Thanks for cutting us some slack. Thanks, Iman. Um, we are probably off next week, right? Probably. It's March break. Yeah. I got some breaking to do, working yeah. at the cottage with the kids. Yeah. And the internet connection isn't nearly good enough to record a episode when we're not we're in the two same place. Places. Yeah. So anyway, we'll we'll try to get our hot takes out where we can, probably. On we'll maybe reconvene. We might cross paths one or two times next week. We might. Because we see each other a lot. Uh, and so with all that being said, thanks for listening, everyone. See ya. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to the docket on itunes if you like it spread the word you can follow emily on twitter at emily tamman and you can follow me on twitter at m spratt thanks for listening you can't prove it oh, oh. you got nothing legit